Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello, and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. We're not always easy, but we're in this together, and we have some great people helping us along the way. Before we launch into today's podcast, I just wanted to thank you for pre-ordering my book, How to Talk to Kids About Anything, which comes out September 12th, 2023. I can't wait to share it with all of you, my loyal listeners who have been with me on this journey as we interview the most interesting and helpful and insightful experts, authors, professors, real people from around the world, just like the fabulous person we have on today. Now, when I asked my next guest to come back on the show. Yes, back on the show, because she was with us before. I wanted to know what she wanted to discuss because she has such an interesting perspective and a, an incredible way with words. And she said that she would like to talk about how kids don't thrive when they're raised like dogs on a leash who have to go a certain way to please their owner, the parent. You see, my next guest did this amazing, extremely popular TED Talk in 2016 entitled How to Raise Successful Kids Without Overparenting, which has now reached almost 7,500,000 views. And in it, she talks about how we cannot map out our children's every move, checklist their childhood so that they get into the right colleges and they get the right jobs and that they are the right kind of successful, even if that doesn't mean that they're truly fulfilled. And she also wrote a couple of books on similar topics, How to Raise an Adult, and then later your turn talking directly to the kids and the young adults about how to be a successful adult in their own right. How do we drop the rope or the leash in this case? and refrain from keeping from our children from their passions, from their individuality, from their identity, from their destiny? How do we talk to our kids about embracing who they are, leading the life that they want to lead, and willingly taking the steps to forge their own path? For that, we're going to be talking to Julie Lithcott-Hames. Julie Lithcott-Hames believes in humans and is deeply interested in what gets in our way. Her work encompasses writing, speaking, public service, and activism. She is a New York Times bestselling author of books on human development, a TED Talk speaker, a former Stanford dean, and a lawyer. And she holds a BA from Stanford University, a JD from Harvard Law, and an MFA from California College of Arts. She serves on numerous nonprofit boards whose work focuses on equity, education, youth, wellness, and the arts. Julie lives in Palo Alto, California with her partner of over 30 years. They're fabulous young adults. 
and her mom, and she is a member of the Palo Alto City Council now. Her latest book is a follow-up to How to Raise an Adult, which was the topic of our last podcast episode together, and this latest book is called Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. Welcome, Julie Lithcott-Hames, to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Dr. Robin and Dr. Robin's listeners, thank you so much for having me back and uh, for taking an interest in what I have to say. Well, you really do speak about some interesting topics. And if those of you who haven't heard, Julie does this thing called Julie's Pod, where she talks about all kinds of really interesting things. She also has this like hotline you can call if you don't want to talk out loud to anybody else but her. She's a great listener. But before we jump fully into the, the topic that we are embracing today, I would like to ask you, what lights you up? And what got you so interested in this message of allowing kids to thrive by sort of dropping the rope, by dropping the leash so that they can go their own way? What a beautiful question. I think what lights me up is humans on their journey. I'm a people person. I always have been since I was a little kid. I was the kind of kid other kids seem to feel safe and seen around. We wouldn't have used this language quite the same way back in the 70s, but you know, kids would come to me with their problems if they were upset, if they were scared, if they wanted advice. Um and uh and I appreciated that. And I, and I always took an interest and always tried to listen and, um, and be of use if I could. And so fast forward to me being in my thirties and, and forties as a Dean at Stanford university, I got to work with 18 to 22 year olds who were in the very active process of figuring themselves out and forging an adult self. And so I was privy to their concerns about parental expectations or about what society deemed to be success and the extent to which parents or society or even peers had expectations of them that didn't square with what they wanted for their own lives. And so I got to be a human sitting with those younger humans, taking a deep, abiding, sincere interest in them, giving themselves permission to be who they knew themselves to be to bear witness to somebody emerging from a cocoon, trying to become that butterfly when someone else is saying, oh, no, no, you're meant to be a moth, <laughs> you know? Mm. So um, it was humbling and it was joyful and it gave me great pain to see them constrained by the expectations of parents, well-intended parents, of course, but mm -hmm. I could see the impact, the harm, of a constraint on this young person who was trying to become. So I think that's what lit me up. Like, how can I help? How can I help you despite these constraints of well-intended others? How can I help you grow stronger and more confident around the notion that this is your life, your one wild and precious life, quoting the late poet, Mary Oliver. It is yours, not theirs. It is therefore on you to craft and shape and you are going to screw up and that's fine. You're going to figure yourself out over time. That is what it means to live. And I am rooting for you to do it. Hmm. I, I think it's so important that as key adults in the lives of kids, and you certainly played that very important role for so many people that you 
are giving these kids permission to take the reins when so often they weren't given that permission, you know, from their parents, from their teachers. It was, okay, what's next? Now, now you have to do this next thing. Oh, you, you achieve this. Now let's go to the next class. Let's make sure that you have all of the, the, the right things for the next step that you're on your way. So let's lay it on the table. How do we know if we are holding our children back or leashing them, as you're saying? In other words, how do we know if we are part of the problem? Yeah, beautiful. Let's get right to it. And let me just say as a as a disclaimer, which I think frankly then just gives me further authority. I am a parent just like everyone listening. We parents know a lot. We have good instincts, we have hopes and dreams and for our kids we're trying to do right by them. I want you to know as I'm about to give this advice that I am a parent who needed this advice. Mm. Being a dean, writing a book on the subject, I thought I understood what other people were doing wrong. And then I very humbly came to appreciate, oh shit, I'm doing it. I'm cutting my 10-year-old's meat. That was oh, when God, I, yes. I was that parent. Right. That I wouldn't be able to right. let go of an 18-year-old at the college level or whatever he was going to do after high school if I'm cutting the meat of a 10-year-old because there are so many life skills that have to be taught and learned and perfected and eight years from 10 to 18 is not enough time. So that's when I really got clear, like, oh, I'm I'm doing it too. So um, how do you know if you're doing it? Well, if you're cutting your, if right now you're like, oh, I cut my 11 year old's meat. That's a, right. that's a sign that you are, you're, you're doing for your child, what your child is supposed to be learning slowly over time to do for themselves. So here are other telltale signs. If you constantly say we, when you mean your child, that's a sign that you're, you're in the driver's seat of their life. You got to get in the passenger seat and let them drive. Okay. You're still there for the just in case moment. So they don't drive off a cliff, but like it's their life. So my son, my daughter, my child is on the soccer team. Not we are on the soccer team or we're at such and such elementary. No, you're not. You've actually already gone to elementary school. Now it's <laughs> turn. Okay. If you feel you constantly have to check that parent portal, if your school has one that shows you the grades almost on a constant basis, you know, did they turn in their homework today? What grade did they get on the quiz this afternoon? And you feel you have to check those data and square them against what your kid has said and you're constantly checking. Um, that's a degree of surveillance and anxiety, frankly, uh, that you're buying into that is incredibly unhealthy and shows you don't trust your kid. You don't believe that they're getting a good education. You don't believe that they know how to work hard or that they can improve over time. Your micromanagement of that is a telltale sign. If you're always arguing with the teacher or the coach, if you always have to kind of get in other people's face and make sure that everything is tweaked uh, to perfection for your to serve your kid, instead of letting your kid learn how to navigate the bureaucracies and systems of life, that's another telltale sign. Um, if you have a lot of fear, if you're just constantly worried that your kid's performance today makes or ruins their future tomorrow, um, that's a degree of concern that really undermines this, this behavior. And we call it helicopter parenting, Dr. Robin, but I think that term has let us off the hook because what's so bad about a helicopter? It kind of looks fun, right? My <laughs> the terms I'm lately using to describe these behaviors are micromanagement parenting because I think we all know what it feels like to be micromanaged in the workplace. It sucks. 
when your boss is so on you that you have no room to kind of do things for yourself and, and fix your mistakes and then present the outcome, right? Micromanaging parenting or surveillance parenting, mm. particularly around the GPS tracking and the academic uh, grade portal mm. uh, book watching. So um, those are some indicators. Hope that's helpful. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. I'm going to ask the question that I've had on my mind, but I know other parents have had on their mind after reading your book and Jess Leahy's book um, regarding you know failure and and stepping back. And that has to do with kids who aren't, say, neurotypical or kids who aren't following the typically developing path. And teachers are often calling you and emailing you and saying, your child hasn't handed in his work. Your child is you know, not doing what he's supposed to do. He, he still owes me this project. You have to check the, the portal to keep on top of these things. Please make sure he's doing this, this, and this. So this feels like pressure being thrown in two different directions to me. When your, your child isn't meeting those expectations, the teachers are telling you they're not meeting those expectations and you are trying to step back and you find you step back and your child is not stepping up. Where are we with that? And how can we deal with those two different, two different directions? Yeah. As a parent, it can feel like you're damned if you do and damned if you don't yeah. you're just trying to do the right thing. I really hear that. I'm the mother of a neurodivergent kid. Um, and uh, have really been on a journey myself to accept, understand, appreciate, validate, support him as he is it, with the diagnosis. I think I wanted to wish away the diagnosis and he's so smart, it doesn't matter. Well, that did not, uh, <laughs> that was not a good approach. Um, and actually I'm gonna give you a link when we're done uh, for a conversation between me and my adult son, Sawyer, who's 23, uh, a podcast conversation with a local mental health provider that we we've turned to for support in our family. And, uh, you know, to hear him at 23 talking about his journey with ADHD and anxiety and, and, uh, what I did and didn't do and what I knew and didn't know and how he felt. Um, you know, I think it's illuminating and it might help some anyway. I think that would help a lot of people. Yeah. We'll put those in the show yeah, notes. I'll okay. be listening to it too. Okay, good. So to your question, um, you know, teachers in the main are wonderful, hardworking, thoughtful people who really know a whole lot about kids and pedagogy and curriculum. And yet there are some who are falling into this very trap you've just described, which is the kid isn't turning in the homework. So let me urge the parent to be on top of it by checking the portal. Yeah. Back in the day in the 70s and 80s, when I was coming up, there was no portal. We right. only had this portal for 10 or 12 years. And so how did teachers handle it then? Well, they had to send a note home with the kid. Um, ultimately it was the kid at the center of this. Um, it, it was never the parent's job to make sure the homework was brought to school. That's not teaching the kid anything other than my parent will always rescue me when I'm in a bind. So what we've got to do is slow down and say, why isn't this kid seemingly able to turn in their homework? What is going on? Maybe this is an indicator that the kid has ADHD and needs support around that. Instead of the parent sort of coming into the driver's seat, okay, fine, I'll make sure it happens. Um, we've got to really be thoughtful about what kind of 
tools does this kid need to learn over time so that they can ultimately become the person who can remember to do and to turn in their own homework? When our kid has challenges like this, you know, it might mean that they're not going to thrive in this particular school because if this school is unaware that some kids are neuroatypical, neurodivergent, have different needs, and they're just going to try to run them through a process that doesn't take into account that they're struggling, you know, that's that's going to be a system in which that kid fails. But there are better systems out there. And it is a privilege to be able to take your kid out of one school and put them in another. But anyone listening to me who has this inkling, like, you know what, this school system is not prepared to support my kid on their learning journey as a neurodivergent kid or a kid with significant mental health challenges. If you've got the means to find a different school in your region um, and you're hearing me say this and you're kind of nodding, I want to empower you to go lean into that and investigate, is there a better option for my kid? Mm. Okay, we're gonna take that in. That is a really, that is some very hard truth but also could be a really important solution. So let me just highlight that. So we've just talked about how do we know where the, you know, if we're the problem, we also talked about the, the issue with this, if there is an issue with the school, how can we convey to our kids that their individualism, their experimentation, their lack of perfectly fitting into some preconceived box society or family has sculpted for them is okay with us. And in fact, what's supposed to happen as opposed to this checklisted childhood that many have created and lived by. So before we can um, say any of that to our kid, Dr. Robin, we have to actually believe it ourselves. Mm. So let's let's start with that step, okay? Um, which by which I mean we have to examine what's going on within us that makes us incapable of articulating or believing those messages. By which I mean our ego, our insecurities, our fears around what will happen or won't happen if I fail to do my kid's homework. And let's just put that on the table. A lot of parents are outright doing their kid's homework, which is unethical. Teachers are left not knowing what kids actually know how to do. And worst of all, it tells your precious child, hey kid, I don't think you can succeed in the fourth or seventh or 12th grade, but don't worry, I'll do your work for you. Mm -hmm. It's a debilitating message to send a young mind, okay? So why are we that way? Because we're afraid if I don't do their homework, they will not have the future I need them to have. Why do you need that future so badly that you're willing to commit this really unethical act in furtherance of getting your kid to some outcome? They won't even actually reach. The kid can't have the successful future if the path has been paved by you doing their work you constantly rescuing them. Okay. So it's this short-term win of, I made them, I turned in the homework for them, or I completed the essay for them, or, you know, but the, the long-term loss is your kid can't do it for themselves. And it's really your fault actually. Oh my gosh. Yes. Okay. So go get some therapy <laughs> podcasts like this, become the parent who has well-examined your own fears, your own insecurities. You're asking yourself the big question. Why am I so impatient why am I so fearful? Why does my ego need for their project to look this way such that I stayed up all night with the glue gun, do their work? Okay, like, right? We're all, right. many of us are doing that, all right? 
when you've done the work within yourself, which is important and valid. I'm not, not, I believe in therapy. I've been to it myself. We're in family therapy right now, repatterning with my 23 year old. Okay. Get the therapy to start healing yourself. Number two, then you can develop the philosophical stance of, oh, hey, my kid is not my pet on a leash. My kid is not my potted bonsai tree in a in on my living room, dining room table. My kid is not my project, the evidence of my worth. Their homework is not my trophy, okay? You can instead have this profound philosophical respect for the fact that my kid is a human being separate from me, given to me by God or the universe or however you believe we got here. And my job is to love the heck out of them, feed them well, shelter them, teach them work ethic, teach them to be kind to others and get the hell out of their way. Mm -hmm. You accept that. You did the therapy you accept the philosophy, then how to have these conversations with your kid becomes easier because mm-hmm. you are actually emotionally regulated and you have separated your own self from the being that is your kid. So when they come home at the end of the day and say, well, I guess I'm failing science. Your instinct is not, what do you mean we're failing science? We worked so hard on that test. Let me go talk to the teacher, right? If you've, if you've done the work, then you're able to say, first of all, empathy. I'm so sorry. That doesn't sound very good. Are you all right? Come here. Let me give you a hug. I love you so much. Pause. Let me know if you need any help with this. But I also trust that you can have the conversations you need to have with your teacher. I'm always here when you need me. And then smile and walk away. The walking away actually shows them, I am not so worried about this that I need to step in and micromanage and fix this. I It also says, I trust you've got this, okay? I am not gonna make a big deal out of this. Helps bring the pressure down, okay? And, and also to the example you raised, how can we talk about their individualism or their lack of fitting in or the fact that they will make mistakes? Again, emotionally regulated and knowing we are a separate being from them, We can then say to them, you know, when you want to talk, if you want to talk about your identity, if you want to talk about what's going on in your social life, I am here. I have thoughts, but I don't need to fix anything. I give you, I'll give you ideas if you want them, but I'm also here to just listen. Hmm. Just being present with our kids as they have their tough feelings about pressure, stress, social life, friends, um, feelings, whatever, just being present signifies There is nothing about your emotion that scares me. I'm not feeling a need to change it, to discard it, to dismiss it or fix it. I'll just be present with you as you have these feelings. And if you want some advice, I will scan my thoughts, you know, my brain and my heart to see what I can offer. Um, And, uh, and we'll go from there. Mm. How would you then handle if we flipped it back to that school situation where you are, because I get this a lot from people that you're getting a lot of calls from the school and they're keep asking you to engage and you are having this conversation with your child or hearing what you're saying right now, you want to show your child, you're an individual, I believe in you. How do we then separate ourselves without seeming like, I'm being an irresponsible parent. I'm not, 
going to do what the teachers are asking me to do. How do we deal with that? That feels, that feels cruddy. So the better pedagogy coming from the teacher would be, could we have a parent teacher, a teacher parent kid meeting where we talk this through together? And if the teacher isn't offering that, then as the parent, I want you to say, you know what, teacher, I can see you have some concerns and you want mm-hmm. me to get involved in making this happen. I actually want my kid to be the kid who can learn this. Could we come in and meet with you together mm-hmm. where we talk about what your expectations are and the kid can ask questions and can clarify and so on. And I can say, I'm here to support you, buddy, but you're the one that's the, the second grader or the fifth grader, whatever it is, you know, where we can make clear that this is not neglect. This is me trying to empower my kid to be the one to take the reins in their own life, you know, which Mm. a child is supposed to be doing from early on. Uh, Mm. The minute they learn to walk, they're learning more skills and and skills are not learned in one effort. They're learned over time through trial and error. They get stronger and better each time they have the opportunity to, to try it. So Again, we, you know, it's like, te- imagine this, imagine this. Let's, let me reframe it. Um, the teacher says, um, your child doesn't seem to know how to cross the street. So I need you to always cross the street with them. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's not a forever solution. Okay. Take your kid to that street, narrate how we learn to cross the street, how we look left and right and left, how we stand back from the curb. And how we know it's safe to cross and 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 speak of it, teach them, hold their hand, walk it together a number of times, then move to the step where you say, okay, kid, I'm here with you, but it's your turn to decide whether it's safe to cross. Mm-hmm. And you're still there to make sure they don't, you know, for you know, miss that speeding car. But at some point, the kid has done it enough that you can no longer be there. That's the teaching method we're looking for. The teacher is saying, carry your kid across the street because they can't, and you, the parent, have to know, but one day they have to. So I have to move from step one, I do it for them, to step two, I, step two, I do it with them, teaching them, narrating, to step three, I'm still there for the just in case, but now they're doing it, to step four, I don't have to be there anymore. Mm, yes, I remember this so well from your book. You had said that one of your friends taught yeah. their child that way, right? It was a child who had some some disability of some sort and and it was such it was so beautifully said where you 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 lay out these steps and I still I seem to remember I don't know if I had thought about it myself or if you used it as an example but it was like having to do with cooking where you know the person standing next to you and the, the kid is watching you cook and then they become sort of your sous chef, like your apprentice, right? Like they're helping you. And then you switch to the the sous chef position and you're helping them. And then they're doing it completely. And it just was, it has been so ingrained in my head that I have done this so many times now from after reading that. I would wonder, what would you say are maybe a handful of skills that you would really hope that kids would be able to do, let's say by, by the beginning of high school, like elementary, middle school, like let's, let's get these handful of skills really mastered and maybe they're not being mastered. So you'd like to say something about it. Yeah. I have to give my friend Stacey Ashland a shout out. She's the person you're you're quoting from how to raise an adult, the, the mom of a kid 
who um, I believe identifies as neurodivergent and also has some issues with um, uh, hearing loss mm -hmm. and, and sight loss. And that kid is now 23 and in a PhD program in the hard sciences and has thanks to his parenting, you know, how he was raised, they empowered him to be wow. as well as he could possibly be instead of holding his hand forever. And now mm -hmm. he's this extraordinarily capable person. That proof is in that pudding. Let me tell yeah. you. Okay. Here are some things. Um, a kid's got to be able to buy things in a store. Okay. A kid's got to be able to go into a corner store and find things on the shelves, ask for help when they can't find what they need go to the checkout, pay for it somehow with cash or with uh, with a card of some kind. And too many of our youth have been taught, don't talk to strangers, therefore don't you dare go into a store without me. And uh, then they are deprived of this basic act of procuring uh, groceries. And then they become young adults who feel stupid, silly, bad, embarrassed, because they don't have this basic skill. And they're wondering, why don't I feel like an adult? And part of it is, well, you were never allowed to practice along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, getting places on their own, uh, walking places, biking places, public transportation. Uh, many of us are so afraid that we prevent our kids from having the smaller experiences that would lead to them being able to get on that subway in the big city one day. And they don't know how to read maps. They don't know how to read signs. They don't know how to, you know, handle the turnstile or the place where you buy a ticket. And, you know, we're supposed to teach them all this. Here's a great example. Um, if you're a family that fly, that flies, every now and then, you know, stop being the one to lead your 10 and 12 year old through the airport and they follow behind like little ducklings. Instead, I did this with my 12 year old yeah. Sawyer at the time, my now 23 year old, I said, Sawyer, okay, you know what? I'm realizing the next time you're in an airport, I want you to be able to navigate it. So even though we're all here together, I want you to be the one to get us from the curb all the way through to the gate. Okay. Yeah. You've pulled the signs. Well, he was like, really? And I said, yes. So here we are following Sawyer in the wrong direction, at which point my husband is like, wait a minute. And I'm like, I almost want to like put my hand over his mouth. Like, no, no, no. The whole point is we got here early enough so we can actually practice this. Sawyer mm. in the wrong direction. And Sawyer needs to be the one to figure this out. Okay. What a yeah. great thing that I was so proud so of awesome. myself. That was when I just stopped cutting his meat. <laughs> I was like, what else does he have to learn? Absolutely. I did that with my daughter in New York. I was like, all right. Basic information, uptown means the, the numbers go up. Downtown means the numbers go down. We need to go to 23rd Street. Where are we going? And, you know, now she's a sign reader, which I think is awesome. You wow. know, I, I think I have to do this more with my son, you know, who's the yeah. youngest. Yeah. You know, the oldest, I think sometimes we we do it more because you know, they, they comparatively seem more mature. But yeah. A 12-year-old is a 12-year-old, right? You know what? I'm getting a FaceTime call from my daughter who's 21. I'm just going to exit off my phone. <laughs> She's in college far away. And of course, I want to respond to my baby girl, but I also have to do the work that I'm doing, yeah. which is, and I know if it's an emergency, I'll get a text saying I need you, right? Yes. I'm saying this out loud to demonstrate that when we just constantly drop everything and attend to our kid, um, without taking into account, you know, is this an emergency? Do they need me right now? Um, we are um, in that sort of hovering space. Um, mm. uh, I don't want anyone to think, oh my gosh, Julie's being so cruel. She's not answering her daughter, but no, Julie's in the act of a business meeting right now with Dr. Robin. And I am, you know, trying to model the restraint 
Uh, does my kid need me? Maybe. Can I trust that if she really does need me, if something's wrong, that I will hear uh, a more urgent alert than what I can tell from an incoming face call? Yes, I trust that. Mm-hmm. And um, trust is a huge feeling that eludes us and that we're grasping for as parents. How can I trust the system? How can I trust the subway? How can I trust the grocery store? You know, how can I trust ultimately that my kid is capable? And I'm going to quote now, Kelly Corrigan, who many of us know, great podcaster, great author and thinker. When I was on her podcast, she said, Julie, my father taught me there is no greater buzz than the feeling you get from solving your own problems. Mm. When your kid figures out whether to take the uptown train or the downtown train, Dr. Robin, even if she gets it wrong the first time, and then you have to, she realizes, oh, wrong one, what do we do now? We're gonna have to get off, take a different train, other direction, like ultimately the feeling she will have at having thought it through, figured it out and ultimately executed it with some bumps along the way, There is a buzz, a psychological hit of positivity Mm. we get by solving our own problems. So let's stop depriving our kids of having that natural dopamine hit of like, wow, I just, I just handled that, you know? Yes. Delicious feeling. Yes. That is a really good point. Yeah. So, okay. So we talked about (laughs) some skills that we absolutely want to, to give to our kids and have them be able to do. And that those are really, really important because I think that sometimes we think about, okay, well, basic skills, laundry, cooking, but getting someplace is really important. Being able to buy something is really important. If you had the ability to change one specific thing, specific thing, that parents are doing today that you feel is a detriment to positive child development, what would it be? Oh, there's so many things. Uh, <laughs> it really does depend on age and stage. Um, I heard an educator, I was somewhere, I think I was in, um, where was I? I was in Nashville a couple weeks ago meeting with some educators as well as talking to college students at Vanderbilt and a person who runs the preschool there or an early childhood program there said they're so inquisitive and curious and determined to solve problems for themselves when they're five but when then when I see those same kids at nine it's been beaten out of them they're Mm -hmm. so compliant they've been told just follow the directions the adults give you they're not self-starters anymore and they're not problem solvers And so I just want to say that, like they start out wanting to like picture the toddler who's like, I'll do it. I do it. Right. They can't do it, but they're determined and they're mad. And that's a good thing. Okay. That is a good thing. We want them to have that burning yearning desire to do for themselves. So don't squelch that in your child. Mm -hmm. Don't let your need for the dishwasher to be perfectly stacked, whatever anxiety is in you that feels makes you feel unsafe when your dishwasher is stacked wrong air quotes go get some therapy around that (laughs) let your child stack expect your child to stack the dishwasher as a matter of chores then the next day when some things didn't get clean don't just rinse it 
and fail to give your child feedback, very lovingly say, hey, buddy, come here. Appreciate that you did the dishwasher yesterday. Let me show you what happens when this gets stacked next to this. Next time, I'd like you to try it this way because that way everything gets clean the first time. Smile, mm. thank, walk away. This walk away thing is really, <laughs> it's very important. I think what you're saying really highlights some of the very small things that we can change and also the small things that are actually the big things. So I really appreciate what you're saying. If you could finish this sentence, when we parent a child like a dog on a leash, the loss is freedom, uh, self-control, um, uh, agency, identity. Mm -hmm. When we parent a child to embrace their individual nature and follow their own passion and inner compass, the gain is a thriving, joyful child. And I have to put this asterisk on it. The daughter that I just mentioned, Avery, is an artist. And I did not value that when she was young. And I'm ashamed to have been that person. But I say this aloud because there are parents listening who are needing their child to be a this, that, or the other and not valuing the talents and gifts the child is actually demonstrating. And this daughter of mine, the artist, is graduating from college with a major in dance choreography and performance, as well as cultural anthropology, and has had paid internships in the arts and is planning to make her way in life as an artist. And I worry that she won't be able to afford rent, but I've finally accepted artists figure this shit out. Mm -hmm. And it is it is rude and, and arrogant for me to say, no, 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 go be a this or that because you can pay your bills. You know, my daughter is an artist and I adore the artist that she is. And I have seen the joy emanate through her spirit when she finally got a mom, me, who was able to embrace her as she is. That is really beautiful. I will say that my brother is an artist and he is an artistic director of a large company and is doing extremely well in life. Um, so they do yeah. figure it out. Yeah. yeah, they do. And, and, uh, so talented. If you have parents listening right now, and I'm sure we do who are realizing right this, right this last half hour that they are making the choices, making the sandwiches, <laughs> doing the laundry, making the excuses for chores not being done, how can they start to make the necessary changes? Is it too late or it's can they start late. now? It's never too late. Step one, you're listening, you're feeling that way. That's good. You're, you're noticing. That's good. Pay attention. Step two, go to your kid and say, hey, kid, uh, I've been made aware <laughs> lately that maybe I'm doing a little too much for you when in fact, I'm supposed to be teaching you to do for yourself. So first I want to apologize. I've, I love, I love you. And I'm always trying to do what's right for you, but I've come to appreciate that maybe over help undermines. So I want to apologize for that. And your kid will be astounded by the way, 
say this with grace and generosity, not trying to turn them into your therapist, but just say that. Then you say, so how about we pick three things that I've been doing for you that maybe it's time for you to learn to do for yourself. And we can plan on me teaching you that stuff this weekend or over the course of this next month or this summer, how big, depending on how big the task is. In other words, it's a process. You got to get from step one, you do it for them to step four, they can do it for themselves. And you need to lean into steps two and three, own it with your kids and invite them into the conversation about what do they want to learn? Which reins do they want to take out of your hands? What do you do about a child who pushes back on it? They don't don't want it. Of course, because when you've been... Um, treated like a little prince or princess and everyone's always handled everything. It's kind of cushy. They don't yet know the psychological harm that is coming their way of feelings of anxiety and depression because they've never developed agency, uh, which is the sense of I exist. I know I exist because I'm capable of doing stuff. So they don't yet know the harm that's coming. Uh, So why would they accept the greater responsibility? Little kids will do it. Little kids are excited to help. They're excited to learn. Again, it hasn't been beaten out of them. Um, I've got some chores listed on pages 166 to 168 of how to raise an adult, which start for kids as early as two and three. You'll be astounded at what little ones are capable of. I didn't know chores mattered until my kids were 10 and 12, and they did push back. They were like, if we, if this is so important, why haven't we been doing this all along? And I had to just swallow my pride and say, you know what? My bad. We're going to make up for lost time. Here's a vacuum, you know, walk away. And walk away. (laughs) All right. Give us your top tip. What do you hope people come away with after listening to this podcast? One thing, one nugget that they can put into play right away. What's the top tip? Um, yeah, the top tip. You know me, I'm so long-winded and I have so many things to say, but let me try to boil it down into one top tip. You're not alone, parent. You're doing your best. And there's probably some stuff that is worth examining in your own psyche and spirit about why you're treating your kid like a dog on a leash. Hmm. Okay, it's okay. Nobody's blaming you. You can grow to be the parent your kids need and deserve with some therapy, read a few book, good books, listen to some good podcasts like this one. You've got this. You're still a work in progress as a parent, as am I. And that's okay. Yeah, it's it's so, it's interesting because the, what happens when you do all these things that you're saying, and I'm, I'm still listening to all of it too, because I'm doing some stuff right and some not and I know it and I'm working on it. Um, but it it not only teaches this child, but it teaches them that when they're a parent, they need to hand that down too. It's it, you become the model of of what they know is to be true as a parent. And may they may need a reminding later too, but I think it it has s- such longevity, what you're saying. It's not just this child, it's it's generations of children who, and you may be the one person who's stopping it. You might be the one who was coddled. So you may not have the model that, that showed you what to do. And now you have Julie. So here we go. You know what? I have one final story, if you'll permit me. Oh, yes. It's about Sawyer, my 23-year-old. Early on in the pandemic, he and his little sister, Avery, were home for the pandemic. And um, I was, you know, making dinner one night 
and uh, dinner was maybe going to be at six and it's, it's four, I'm starting early. Maybe I'm baking a chicken. So I got to get the chicken in the oven and then, you know, get the other things. And, and for whatever reason, I'm stressed out in the kitchen. I like things just the way they are. I like to just, you know, really have that domain to myself. I don't cook a lot for my family anymore, but when I'm making a big meal, I really expect everything to land on time. I really have, anyway, I get stressed. So Sawyer comes into the kitchen at about 4.30 to make himself a tide me over snack. We call it tide me over until dinner. And he goes, mom, do I heat? He's going to the toaster oven with something to heat up. And he says, do I put it on for 375 or 400? And I kind of snapped at him. I was impatient. I was like, I, you know, I just, I didn't have an answer and I was feeling frustrated. And so I, I was, I had a snappy tone. I turned away, summoned my mindfulness practice and said, because Sawyer showed me that I had used a snappy tone. He sort of looked at me a bit like wide-eyed. I turned away. I said to myself, what's going on? And so I had this dialogue with myself. What's going on? I'm stressed. Why are you stressed? I'm cooking dinner. Why did you snap at Sawyer? Because I'm embarrassed he doesn't know how to use a fucking toaster oven. (laughs) Why do you suppose he doesn't know? Because you never taught him. Oh, I have this dialogue with myself. What do you want to do about it? I want to apologize. Okay, do it. Fine. I turn around. I look at Sawyer. I take a deep breath. I say, Sawyer, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I snapped. It's not you. I'm always stressed in the kitchen. I don't know why. I should figure that out. But I apologize. Smiled. He smiled back at me and was so gracious. He was like, oh, thanks, mom. And I said, and here's what's more. There isn't a correct answer to 375 or 400. If it's supposed to be 375 and you put it in at 400, it's going to start to burn and your nose is going to tell you that. If it's supposed to be at 400 and you put it in at 375, it's going to take longer than you expect. The point is, try one of them, pay attention, take note, learn for next time. That's the answer. That Mm. was parenting gold. Yes. The the recognition of what was going on in me that made me behave that way with my son, the apology step two to my son, and then the teaching step three, and then walking away, minding my own business. Mm -hmm. And he could do, uh, he could reheat that food. Yes. That's great. Yes. Yes. Okay. We have a lot of knowledge right now coming away from this podcast. I, I, I'm feeling much more knowledgeable and I'm feeling like energized to do some new things. So I'm very excited about that. Give us the resource of the week. Where can we go to get more information about you, your book, your books, the great work you're doing? I love that invitation. Thank you. Um, I, as you mentioned earlier, I blog at a place I call Julie's Pod. It's jlithcotthames.substack.com. Um, find me there. I have a free tier and a paid tier. The paid tier just gets you more goodies, more live stuff with me, more videos and audios. But the, the free tier is just essays, short essays from me, noticing something that happened in the world that, that you know, a stumble I made, a problem I had, a, a bind I got myself into. I just try to be really vulnerable on the page to demonstrate to everybody this is normal. We're we're all imperfect. We're all learning. So find me there. And then my website is julielifcotthames.com. You can see my books there, my TED Talk, and uh, follow me on social. Uh, I'm jlifcotthames everywhere on social. So those are the three places, website, social, and Julie's Pod. I'd love for you to, uh, if you liked what you heard me say, 
here with Dr. Rob, and I'd love for you to get to know me and my work more fully. Excellent. And all of those links will be on the show notes. So if you're running around, you're driving a car, don't worry. We got you. You just have to press on everything when you get to it. Okay. Awesome. This is very exciting. And I I just want to thank you for being on the show today. This was so interesting. It was interesting for me as a parent. It was also interesting for for me as as somebody who is interested in children in general. I just think that what you've provided, your insight about kids from your own perspective and from being somebody who works with many, has worked with many kids, I, it, this is, it is gold. And I'm just so appreciative of you sharing your vulnerability as well as your wisdom with us. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, nobody wants to be criticized. We all want to be supported and seen. So I try to tell stories about my own journey so that other humans feel less alone and more inspired to maybe, you know, lean into their own growth edge. Thank you. Thanks. Well, I've got my takeaways and sweet friends. I know you have yours, so let's discuss them. You can go up on Facebook. We can go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page. We can chat about it on Twitter, on Instagram. I'm going to be creating memes based on all the great things that Julie lithcott Haim said today, and we're going to be sharing them all over the place. I'll put them all, all over social, and then you can share them with your friends because maybe there's somebody who you think really could benefit from hearing some of these things. And that could be just such an easy way of showing them, hey, I've got this fabulous meme, boom, and then they can see it, okay? So we can share those. And if you love this podcast like I did, I hope you would go up to iTunes and rate and review it. The more that we give those five-star reviews, the more people will learn about Julie and all of the great strategies she provided. I want people to hear this information. I want them to get her book. So rate and review on iTunes. And you'll get more outstanding solutions. That's all the time we have for today. My fellow parents, leaders, and educators, thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, and curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. There's so many great podcasts up there, and the show notes to this podcast will be up there as well. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the days when you fall short, believe me, we all do it. We've all got it. You've got this. You're here. You're getting the information you need. I know it's not easy, but never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting often provides do-overs. The toaster was still going to need to be learned. We're still going to the airport. We're still getting on the bus. There are going to be many, many times that you can employ these fabulous strategies. So if you're thinking back to the one that you just missed, whoops, I cut his meat. I did her laundry. Don't worry. Tomorrow, today, there'll be more. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. I see you and I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices and our sweet sanity, please know you're 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. been listening to how to talk to kids about anything with dr robin silverman for more information on books articles speaking engagements or curriculum please visit drrobinsilverman.com